Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two interviews today, one with the sociologist Algernon Austin on the fate of black men in the job market, and the other is some commentary from Behind the News sex correspondent Susie Bright on Carrie Levine's Peg the Patriarchy costume at last week's Met Gala. It may come as no surprise to hear this, but black men have a miserable time in the labor market. They face constant discrimination and are massively damaged by brutal rates of incarceration. Here's an illustration of the effect of incarceration on black men. Last month, their official unemployment rate was about 9%. That count excludes the imprisoned. They're also excluded from the denominator in the unemployment rate formula. The definition of the population excludes those behind bars, as well as those otherwise institutionalized. If those are included among the jobless and their numbers added to the population, the black male unemployment rate would rise to 13%, that is, by four points. The prison effect in the numbers for white men would be much less dramatic. A 4.5% unemployment rate last month would rise to 5 if prisoners were included, an eighth as large as the rate of increase for black men. Here to outline the problem, explain its origins, and lay out some solutions is Algernon Austin. He's a sociologist who just joined the Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR, in Washington to run its race and economic justice program. Algernon Austin. Let's start with uh, the situation of black men in the labor market today. How hard were black men hit by the pandemic recession, and uh, how vigorous has the rebound been? When the pandemic arrived, the entire economy was shut, shut down, so lots of people were hit very hard simultaneously, and that's unusual because usually you see the disparities from the get-go, but initially it was widespread, and now you're seeing, uh, unfortunately, the usual inequalities where people of color have higher unemployment, women have been particularly hit, hit hard because of the jobs that, that they're in. They're more likely to be in the service sectors that, that were shut down because there are no customers, no face-to-face service, and also because women disproportionately do childcare, and there's been a serious lack of affordable childcare. So with schools closed or, or reduced, and children not being able to receive the vaccination, so the people of color hit pretty badly. Women hit pretty badly, but. Uh, one thing that people don't realize, I mean, on average, in many respects, men do better than women, but black men are not average men. So in many respects, black men tend to look more like women when you look at just the raw numbers uh, on various measures. In many cases, they actually do worse than women, like in terms of educational attainment. Black women are doing better than black men. So black men have been hit fairly hard um, and continue to have the highest unemployment rate among the groups when you look by race and gender. Now, the denominator when we figure the unemployment rate is the civilian population, a lot of black men in prison. How does that affect uh, the unemployment numbers? There are two factors. I'm glad you brought that up because there are two factors that really underestimate. Well, there are several factors, but two important ones that really underestimate the impact of joblessness when we look at black men. One is the incarceration rate, the the very high incarceration rate. And that works in two ways. One, because a significant number of black men are, are incarcerated. The unemployment numbers are based on the civilian, non-institutional population. So significant numbers of black men are institutionalized, meaning they're in prison. The other factor is that when you're formally incarcerated, a returning citizen or an ex-felon, it becomes very difficult for you to find a job in the labor market. And if you consistently have problems finding work, that can lead you to not try to find because you're saying, look, I've been rejected a hundred times. Why, why make it a hundred and one? But the moment someone says they're not going to be trying to find work, that's the moment that the Bureau of Labor Statistics say they're no longer unemployed. 
they're jobless, but they're not considered unemployed. So that's another way that both because black men who are formerly incarcerated are going to be highly likely to drop out of the labor force, but also because of instability in housing and distrust of the government. CEPR has, has done work showing that there's an undercount. The Bureau of Labor Statistics may not be able to find them to survey them. So there are multiple ways that incarceration uh, really depresses the numbers for black men. So although black men have the highest unemployment rate, by the official count, that is a significant underestimate when you look at the the broad problem of joblessness. So because of these factors and others, um, the unemployment rate is actually not the best measure for assessing joblessness among black men. Uh, I've recently started looking at the employment rate or the employment to population ratio, and that is like what it says. It's like what percent of a population. And again, that would be the non-institutional population, so prisoners would be excluded. Yes, yes, important point. That's an important point. What percent of the non-institutionalized civilian population is employed uh, relative to the the total population. And what you see is for white men, for Hispanic or Latinx men, and for Asian men, the rates tend to be similar if you're looking at the prime age uh, workers, that's 25 to 54. They tend to be very similar for for those three groups. But for black men, they, they consistently lag about 10 percentage points. And when you look at that measure, and you assess the gap based on that measure, you find that the joblessness gap with with whites is two to four times, depending on the time period, of what you get when you look at the unemployment rate. So and again, we emphasize that this is probably an undercount because uh, the surveyors miss a lot of black men. Right. And because, as you were saying before, it's looking at the civilian population, but those those black men who are incarcerated, they are also not contributing to black communities. In many cases, they have children who they cannot support. So you have to recognize that their joblessness has an economic impact on black families and black communities. So that's significant. And then there's another factor in that there's a higher mortality rate for black people generally, but also for significantly for black men. So that's another loss uh, of income in the black community. So you're losing uh, because of mortality, you're losing because of uh, incarceration, and you're losing just because of joblessness in the civilian population among the people who are still alive. And just to return to the incarceration issue for a second, most people in prison were poor before they went in and uh, didn't have great educational qualifications either. Add to that, when they get out of prison, the complication of being an ex-con, and it becomes really, really difficult to find a job. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tremendously difficult, uh, and there's an interplay, right? Because if black people had full employment, good jobs, good wages, you'd have lower rates of criminal involvement, lower incarceration rates. So you have this cycle, right, that, that it feeds in both directions. It, it feeds onto each other, you know, the incarceration adds to the joblessness, but the joblessness feeds into the factors that lead to the incarceration. So it's really important that we figure out ways to to break this cycle. One of the things that I'm looking into is subsidized jobs. I mean, basically, black communities are depressed, and they're always depressed. Just looking at the overall numbers, if you look at the median white unemployment rate for the last 50 years, the black unemployment rate has never fallen below that median. Yeah, I was just about to ask you, has there been a trend? I mean, or is this, you know, we've seen the growth of a fairly large black middle class over the last 50 years. Jim Crow is gone. But has there been any trend over those decades in which we thought we've all grown post-racial or moved in that direction at least? Has there been any trend of narrowing that uh, unfortunate ratio? No, no. The unemployment rate ratio has has remained steady. So the black unemployment rate overall is typically about twice the white unemployment rate, and that has been that has been rock steady. So people get confused, and the post-racial point of view arises because you can look at at 
the labor market and jobs in at least three ways. You can look at the types of jobs, and certainly from the 1950s to today, the types of jobs that Black people uh, have access to has certainly um, increased. So occasionally you have Blacks who are head of Fortune 500 CEOs. We have Not many of them, but yeah. Right, yeah, that's what I said occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) Every so often you get one and then you move on. But even, you know, leaving out the the top, you have black CEOs. They may not be Fortune 500, but you have black CEOs of significant companies. Uh, You have black people in a whole host of occupations that they weren't in in the 1950s. So that has certainly improved. But when you look at the relative number of jobs, the ratio of the unemployment rate, that has not improved. And when you look at measures like wages or job quality measures, you're you're not seeing significant movement. In some of these measures, you're seeing declines relative to the 70s. So you saw an increase from the 60s to the 70s and then a slow decline. So it's a mixed bag. And if you look at the 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 range of occupations, you say, oh, things have improved greatly. But if you look at the job quality and the relative number of jobs by the unemployment rate, you see, no, we, we're kind of stuck. We haven't been moving, making progress. Now, I haven't looked at these uh, this literature in many years, but as I recall that if you did a comparison of white people and black people with the same, on paper, the same qualifications, the same education, the same experience, same geography, you know, all those sorts of things that go into wage determination, black people are still underpaid relative to white, even if you, everything else is all equal. I mean, I imagine that still persists. There's still a racial disadvantage, yes, when you control for, for education and, and a number of other factors. Yes, you, you still see that wage gap. It's still also a present in terms of employment. That's one sign of racial discrimination in the labor market. The other, the other sign that's, that's even more powerful is these um, audit studies. I'm speaking with a sociologist, Algernon Austin. Now, you mentioned the research of Diva Pager, the late Diva Pager. Yeah, could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so what, what she did was she sent black, black men uh, and white men into the, her first study, uh, black men and white men into the low-wage labor market in Milwaukee. And these were, um, I believe they were college students, and they were trained to present in similar ways and present the similar information to employers. So they went around to employers and they applied for, for jobs. Same presentation, same qualifications, and she found a significant difference in terms of employers' response and whether they're willing to offer these young men a job or whether they would call them back for a follow-up interview. And she found that the white men had significantly higher uh, callback rates than the black men, and so much so that even a white person with a criminal record who said, and we were talking about the the, the impact of of incarceration, uh, a white person with a criminal record had the same odds as a black person without a criminal record. You know, this is pretty strong evidence of discrimination in the labor market. And she and some colleagues reviewed 25 years of of these types of studies, and they found no decline in racial discrimination over over that period. So we have a serious problem, and until we're willing to really confront that, we're going to have these serious economic inequalities and disadvantages uh, for African Americans. And then uh, another challenge you mentioned that black men face is um, connections. A lot of employment is gained through informal connections, somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, and you get a job that way. Black men are at considerable disadvantage in that uh, realm, right? Yeah, so there's another great study by a sociologist, Deirdre Royster, and she did this wonderful study from a <laughs> academic sociologist's point of view. Uh, she went to, to one Baltimore high school. So these students are coming out of the same high school. They're taking the same classes. They have the same grades. Um, and then she looks at what happens. And these white young men are able to get blue-collar jobs, and these black 
young men are at Burger King or McDonald's. And it's like, how how is it that these white young men are getting these jobs that they're getting in the trades are much higher paying, much uh, be- better benefits, long-term prospects than these uh, low-wage service sector jobs that the black youth are getting. And it's because the, the white young men have older white men who are referring them to these jobs. You know, so the black students are just cut off from the networks to these these blue-collar jobs that the white young men had. Other researchers have looked into this, and um, one scholar says it's um, racism without discrimination because the whites, and this is part of the crazy <laughs> misinformation land that we're in, the whites felt that affirmative action was helping black people so much in, in Baltimore that they needed to protect these jobs from black people, right? They were fairly conscious of excluding because they thought black people had all these advantages. Similarly, other research have found that whites relying and having these predominantly white networks, they don't see it as discrimination because they don't see themselves as actively denying. It's not like a black person came to them and applied for a job and they the person was qualified and they said no. They just consciously or unconsciously help other white people get jobs. But what happens when you look at the macro effects of that is that you have greater access to jobs for white people and and more limited access for black people, especially when you consider, going back to the CEOs, most of the people in positions to hire and most of the people who know about jobs were a majority white country and white people are overrepresented among the people leading companies and making hiring decisions in companies. So if white people are relying heavily on their white networks, that's going to be a significant disadvantage to black workers. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like the very definition of a vicious cycle, all this stuff. Yes, yes. So how do we break out of it, considering the viciousness and longevity of this cycle? You mentioned subsidized jobs, but what about the discrimination factor? The stuff that uh, Diva Pager uncovered. How do you break that? There's millions of private decisions that are really hard to quantify and for anybody, any kind of action to be taken. So what do you do about it? Yeah, so one thing, you know, the first step, as they always say, is, is admitting you have a, a problem. So if we can admit that we have a problem, then that will take us a long way to, to solving it. We do have uh, anti-discrimination laws. Some administrations have been more committed to enforcing them than others, so we need to enforce the laws that we have. We do need affirmative action, but it, but that is under attack. One policy that, that affirmative action programs do is saying, look, if you have a job, you should make sure that all qualified people can find it, right? You shouldn't just rely on networks. So affirmative action, when people understand what it is, it's about really ensuring equal opportunity and equal access. So we need to really strengthen that. The other thing that Diva Pager pointed out, and this is, um, again, if, if people recognize the problem, is that because of the prejudice against Black people in American society, it, it becomes very helpful for workers to have somebody, if a black worker can have a white former employer vouch for them, that's tremendous in terms of getting a new employer to to take them seriously as a candidate. So that's another thing to get whites who are respected by employers to vouch for, for black candidates. It's not the ideal and it's very limited, but it does work. Um, and then the other thing that I've mentioned is, is subsidized jobs. I do think we can target jobs to uh, high, un- high unemployment uh, communities. So, for example, Detroit, that are predominantly black. And hopefully those can be transitional jobs because, again, once you're in the labor market, once you have work experience, when you have an employer who said, yeah, this person has worked for me, for two, three years, they've been good workers, and I recommend them for this new job. That can be very helpful. So I see 
uh, a strong subsidized jobs program as a benefit in itself, but I think it can also be used as a type of transitional jobs program that, that can can uh, lead people into more employment. The other the other benefit of uh, subsidized employment, I do think in, in places like Detroit, if you increase the employment rate, that's more income in the local community, that's more support for local businesses, that can help produce economic growth that, that then can lead to, to more employment. Now, how do you feel about the, a job guarantee program? I want to look at that a little bit more. It is a provocative idea. I do want worry about how it will would be implemented and its its economic overall economic effects. But it's it's definitely something that's worth looking into. It's you know, we were talking about the politics, but politically I'm not sure if it's a bigger lift than a subsidized jobs program or or less. And that's something I have to figure out because people say, well, universal programs are more appealing in in some respects. Uh, job guarantee is certainly a much more massive federal program. And a targeted program could be targeted to high unemployment communities, which would include some white communities in Appalachia, you know, American Indian communities, the Latino communities. So that also has some universal appeal, and it's not quite as big and as costly as a federal job guarantee. But, you know, even in the best of times, like the labor market of 2019, the headline numbers look great. You know, on a really low unemployment rate, labor markets look really tight. But even then, black men don't do so so well, even in the best of times. Yeah, even in the best of time, and again, going back to what I was saying, even in the best of time, if you're looking at the prime age jobs gap, that was about 400,000 for black men, just using the unemployment rate. And that was the lowest unemployment rate on record. <laughs> um, but we still had a gap between black men and white men of, of about 400,000. But if you looked at the employment rate gap, then it was about 800,000. And again, that's an undercount and it doesn't account for the men who are incarcerated and the, unfortunately, the men who, who, who've died early. So we're talking, you know, typically, basically on any given day, uh, Black America is short at least a million jobs. Um, and so when people think about, you know, the the poverty and all and problems related to poverty that they see in Black communities, they have, people need to remember that, that these are communities functioning with a severe shortage of jobs, not just this year, not just last year, but for as long as we've been tracking the the numbers with any specificity, uh, we've been looking at communities with severe uh, shortage of jobs. There's nothing less than a social emergency, really, but um, it's hard to evoke that uh, sense of alarm in the broad population. Yeah, yeah, it's so constant that it's like anything else, because it's always there, you, it fades into the background, and we really need to bring it to the foreground um, and remember it and see it, because until we do that, we're never going to uh, address it. That was Algernon Austin, director of the Race and Economic Justice Program at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in D.C. I have to say I'm less skeptical than he is about a job guarantee under which a federal government would act as an employer of last resort. There's plenty of things that need to be done in a society from childcare to environmental reconstruction, and we could put millions of jobless people to work doing those things because the market won't do it by itself. But employers probably wouldn't like a tighter labor market. Austin cited the research of Diva Pager, who sent around young men posing as job applicants, black and white, some with fictional criminal records on their resumes and some without. Sadly, Pager, who by all accounts was a brilliant and charismatic person, died several years ago at the age of 46. She was on this show in 2005 and again in 2007 to discuss this research. Here's a brief excerpt from her 2005 appearance. Okay, so in that study, I hired four young men who posed as job applicants, and I assigned them resumes that had equivalent levels of education and work experience, and I trained them to approach employers in similar ways, and I sent them to apply for jobs all over the city, uh, entry-level jobs like restaurant workers, couriers, customer service, retail sales, laborers, 
and had them apply to jobs varying only their race or whether they presented evidence of having a criminal background. Two young men would apply to each employer, one without a criminal background and one indicating that he had recently been released from prison for a felony drug conviction. And so what did you find? Well, I found that their employers were very reluctant to hire ex-offenders. Individuals with criminal backgrounds were half to a third as likely to receive a callback by employers. Um, And actually, blacks were more seriously affected by the stigma of a criminal conviction than were whites. But probably the most surprising finding from the study is that even blacks that had no history with the criminal justice system did only as well, maybe even a little bit worse than did whites with felony convictions. Basically, it suggests that being black in America today is like having a felony conviction. A young black man with no contact with the criminal justice system did no better than a young uh, a white male felon. You recount some uh, anecdotes of, of the white guys who are posing as ex-felons. Some prospective employers actually said, well, I'd like to give you a chance. We all make mistakes in life, right? Yeah, that came up especially in the New York context. So I recently replicated and expanded this study in New York City, and we found a number of employers who expressed quite a bit of sympathy for uh, the young white ex-offenders. They uh, indicated that they deserved a second chance and that the employer really wanted to help them get back on their feet. And that kind of empathy came up less, less often with the black ex-offenders. And uh, there are also, in many jurisdictions, uh, whole um, occupational categories that are off limits to uh, ex-cons, right? Yes, that's right. So I was only looking at jobs that are legally available to ex-offenders, but each state decides for themselves which occupations will be limited or restricted to ex-offenders. And those include some jobs that make a lot of sense. So you don't want a violent offender working in a school or in a child care center. But in some cases, these occupational restrictions really seem sort of out of nowhere. So some states prevent ex-offenders from working as an embalmer or as a septic tank cleaner or a real estate agent or a billiard room worker. So there there are these strange occupational categories that for particular historical reasons are are off limits to ex-offenders. In a lot of cases, uh, it's a condition of parole that uh, someone actually be out there looking for a job and get employment. Uh, This is kind of a catch-22, isn't it? Yep, that's right. It's not only a condition of parole, but it's actually the very strongest predictor of desistance from crime. So in in looking at for released released prisoners, who's going to return to crime and who's going to go straight, the people that have and hold down steady jobs, those are the people that are most likely to be successful. And so really as a public safety strategy more generally, it's important for all of us to be thinking about how we can get ex-offenders from prison and in directly into jobs, because that's what's going to keep them from uh, going back to crime. That was the late sociologist Diva Pager from an interview on this show back in 2005. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Corpse Pose by the Montreal-based Japanese band Tiki Tiki. At least that's how I think you pronounce it. Last week, a few outfits supported by attendees at the annual Met Gala, a fashion industry bash that raises money for the Metropolitan Museum's Costume Institute, made the news. Most notable is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Tax the Rich gown. Attracting not quite as much attention was the Peg the Patriarchy message on model and actress Carrie Levine's vest, another notable political intervention in the space mainly known for celebrity, fashion, and money. 
By the way, Luna Matatas, a Canadian sex educator, says she coined the phrase, peg the patriarchy, and isn't getting the credit for it. Credit given. Here to analyze the message is Susie Bright, the writer, editor, podcaster, and many other things, who's been covering sex from a feminist and radical political perspective since the 1980s. She was one of the founders of On Our Backs, the pioneering lesbian erotic magazine in 1984. Susie Bright. Everyone, well, not everyone, everyone was talking about AOC's dress, but some people were talking about, um, after the Met Gala, Carrotted Levine's Peg the Patriarchy, which she apparently stole from somebody else. What did you make of that slogan, and what did you make of her use of it, and having this gorgeous model act as the ambulant billboard for the message? Well, I'm often used to the Met Gala being this campy fashion display of both over-the-top excess, humor, farce. It's like uh, our fashion meets Moliere kind of an event. It's hard to remember sometimes that it really does benefit a beautiful public museum system that is open to all. (laughs) We see a lot of outrageous things all night, and some guests always come with political messages. When I saw um, Cara Delevingne's um, Peg the Patriarchy, of course, I smiled and laughed. And I thought, look at this. New York's finally getting into the pegging craze 20 years late, <laughs> which I guess was a bit of a West Coast chauvinist moment. But when I saw Kara's presentation, Peg the Patriarchy, of course, I laughed immediately. And I understood she was making a PG rated nod to uh, age old feminist posters and clothes and protests that have said essentially, screw the patriarchy. Ask the patriarchy. That is the original slogan. And if you tell your grandma to go through her T-shirts and posters in the 60s, you will see it emblazoned all over the place. It was an expression of early women's liberation saying enough, enough with male chauvinism, enough with patriarchy, enough with sexism, enough with mansplaining. Just shut it down. That was the message. And the fact that it is so irreverent and rude is the very opposite of a young woman crossing her legs and being polite and waiting till the man has finished speaking. You know, it, it has all the energy of early women's liberation. It also uses this word peg. Now, if you say peg instead of screw or F off, what you're doing is um, trying to come up with a way to say something that will get in the major newspapers tomorrow, but you're appropriating another bit of slang, another little word. And what is pegging or peg after all? This whole issue, I can't get over it because it's the 20th anniversary of when this came to the fore many years ago, you know, in 2000, when Dan Savage was running his very popular column in his paper, The Stranger, and everyone wrote to Dan Savage for sex advice. He was at the apex of his popularity. He was somebody who embodied the notion of sex positivity and was often talking about a feminist approach to women getting what they wanted in the bedroom, using sex toys in a playful and satisfying way for both parties rather than the sort of secretive, grim notion of marital AIDS, you know, which is how vibrators and and other things were referred to in the past. Sent in a plain brown wrapper. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Dan and I were both at an age where we remember that these so-called sex AIDS were really sold under sort of the grimmest and saddest particulars. You know, like, like, oh, my God, you need one of those? Were you in a terrible accident? You know, like, I mean, just kind of like the worst assumptions and cliches. And we saw this revolution in the 70s, 80s, cresting in the 90s, where things like vibrators and dildos and lubricants, all kinds of things were suddenly for healthy, fun-loving, sex-loving people. Things that lovers could use with enjoyment, pleasure, consent, all of it. Now, so imagine this time, which is not today. (laughs) It was a time at the end of the 20th century where this kind of jolly, effervescent notion was in vogue. And Dan said, you know, more as more people are becoming comfortable with anal sex, for example, and it 
doesn't necessarily mean it's to the woman. Perhaps men like it too. Perhaps it could be part of a heterosexual relationship. The notion that a woman might pleasure a man anally became both a taboo idea, but also received some new acceptance. In the past, I think there was the sense that it was only something that gay men did and, you know, would give, you know, a right-wing evangelist the vapors, you know. Well, men well, have- a lot of straight men, a lot of straight men think of it as a great taboo and it's, you know, it makes it feminizes them, it turns them into a gay man. It's something to be vigorously defended against. Yes, there was this notion that Anal sex for men either meant that you were, you know, as queer as a $3 bill, which is supposed to be, you know, a disaster, or that it made you weak. It made you feminine. It made, it took away your masculinity. The sex positive movement came along and said, you know, sex is just sex. There's no indication about how strong or powerful or masculine or feminine you are. It's just a sex act like any other sex act. And what you bring to it or how you are in response to it is a personal erotic decision, not something that's covered in the pages of the Old Testament. Really isn't. And in that spirit of bonhomie, the idea that a man and a woman could have a scenario where the woman penetrates the man with her fingers or perhaps a dildo was like, wow, okay. Really? Is that a thing? And into that grouping came a very popular adult movie called Bend Over Boyfriend. This movie really blew things up. And it's what started Dan Savage talking about the subject more in his column. Was it really that long ago, like 15 years ago? Yes, it is 20 to 21 years since Dan wrote this column. And Bend Over Boyfriend came out before that, at the end of the 90s. If anybody had a chance to see the movie, and it was quite a breakthrough at the time, it shows a variety of male and female couples where the woman takes a position of penetrating the man to his great pleasure. And there's often this negotiation that comes up to it. And there's just all kinds of hilarious scenarios. I mean, one was a, just to give you an idea of, that it was fun as well as erotic. There was one scenario where the guy was going to play a cop and the woman was going to be a woman that he had pulled over for a traffic ticket. Then things turns erotic and the position changes. And at one point she was going to say something teasing to him about a donut. And at that point, the actors who had volunteered for this job said, no, no making fun of donuts. <laughs> it's like, the bridge too far. Donut they pride. Came, they both came from law enforcement families, and they were fine with all the crazy sex. But having a donut be part of the punchline, like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> this movie, it was the right time in the right place. People were like, really? And you know, a lot of women were like, you mean I can buy a dildo and a harness and sort of pantomime what it's like? to take a traditionally masculine position in relationship to another man? Really? I mean, does it work? Is it fun? Is it enjoyable? Do I get off? If you could untangle yourself from the chains that somehow it was embarrassing or improper or taboo, it just became yet another sex question. No, but part of the pleasure, at least initially, was the taboo or, or, or breaking the taboo. Transgressive. Oh, sure. On one hand, how many people are actually fooling around with this in their sex life. Very few people do anything that theatrical or kinky in their sex life, you know, compared to the whole. But a lot of people like thinking about it or fantasizing about it or like, hey, let's try this once or it's my birthday or whatever, you know, special occasion. What was happening in the late 90s was more of a just an open question about, well, if you reject the idea that women should be barefoot and pregnant and have no interest in sexuality, and if you reject the idea that a man always has to get into the missionary position and show him how it's done, you know, if you could discard these notions of very conservative sex, what might you entertain? To come back to Dan and his advice, he asked his readers, he said, you know, everyone's talking about this woman-on-top sex play with men, and I find it so interesting. What do we want to call this? He said, I've suggested bobbing, pegging. Other people had, a, you know, a, a further name for it. 
let's do a survey. And he was overwhelmed with responses. And the people spoke. They said PEG. PEG appealed to them for its alliteration, for the visual notion that it brought up. It made people smile. I don't know why they didn't go for Bob. Dan and I were pulling for Bob because we loved the movie so much. But pegging one out. And at that point, it just, um, you know, something that might hang around around the kinkier circles or, you know, people who are more experimental in their sex play. It, certainly among sex workers, you might hear people saying, yeah, I have a client. He wants to get pegged. It just became part of nickname vocabulary for the sexually sophisticated, shall we say. The idea that you would then take the word peg and use it as a curse word is really um, more of a recent phenomenon, as in the Met Gala. (laughs) We all know when somebody says, screw off, F off, you mean it in an angry way, right? When people take those words that we can't say on television, as George Carlin once put it, those words are often used to have two meanings. Is it a loving meaning, like, oh, honey, I really want to do you? Or does it mean, you know what, screw off. Peg doesn't have that glorious history of being a word that's used in anger and in love or eroticism until, until now, apparently. So, I instantly understood the ball gown as being a screw the patriarchy punchline. I knew that peg wasn't normally used in that instance, but it was used because it was a word that could be splashed across family newspapers and television. And here we have this confluence of all these things coming together. Pegging's been around, just like the word, you know, Are you topping? Are you bottoming? It's part of the sexual smorgasbord vocabulary. It got married to this idea of saying, I've had it with the patriarchy. They can just go jump in the lake. But, you know, if you wore a dress that said patriarchy, go jump in the lake. Nobody would notice (laughs) that. You wouldn't get the same coverage. I'm speaking with the writer, editor, and podcaster, Susie Bright. Objection that's been raised to the uh, the phrase is that it's very heterosexual and that uh, it emerges from a heterosexual model of life and uh, that it's therefore not queer and revolutionary enough. What do you what do you think about that? Wow, I think that is splicing a hair in a direction I wouldn't necessarily take. It. I am sure when you think about the fashion milieu that. Kara lives in and the kind of people that are part of her world. I mean, she's queer herself. She's surrounded by so many gay men and non-binary folks in the fashion world. They use the word peg and pegging all the time because it's funny or, you, you know, you're making some little quip with it. And it's true that pegging does not mean men having sex with other men. Nor is it something that a lesbian does with another lesbian. I mean, you know, if you really think about it, no, it's for something that a woman would do with her male lover. It's specifically a kind of anal sex where you use a sex toy. That's what it means. And if you're talking about men having sex with each other or lesbians or, you know, you don't even use the word. It doesn't even make any sense. If somebody said they were going to peg me, I would be like, well, actually, that's not a thing. (laughs) We're getting the political slogan, which was just giving the middle finger to the patriarchy, confused with the sex act. There's been other objections besides the ones that you say. Some people are saying, why do we say peg the patriarchy as if that's a cruel thing that we want to do to punish men or to teach them a lesson? For people who really think that, I want to lay their fears that there are not these armies of women roaming the streets saying, yes, we're going to peg them now. It's an expression of political defiance. That's what her little bib overall outfit meant. And within the world of, of seriously using pegging or even joking around using the word pegging, it has to do with a, a sex act that has a little bit of a taboo, a little bit frisson to it, as does everything 
that concerns anal sex. And a lot of us who were around the era of sex education where we just tried to talk about bodies and physiology in a more objective manner, we tried to get away from that. It's like, yes, there's always going to be things that you go, really? Can I do this? What does it mean about me? But once you leap across the superstition gap, you're not going to find that the dreaded taboo is such an obstacle after all. Well, this is uh, raises my other point now, which is somebody brought up on my Facebook page, that actually the patriarchy has evolved so now that it might enjoy being pegged, and it's really not very threatening or not uh, anything that would alarm it at all. How subversive is this uh, this phrase? Don't you feel like when we talk about these things, you're caught in a Twitter wormhole that's you know covered with pig grease and you just can't get out? Everything is so performative. I mean, do we know that the ruling class sometimes likes to bottom in bed? Yes, they do. That's nothing new. The powerful man, you know, who can only relax, you know, when he takes off his three-piece suit and gets pegged in the privacy of the Four Seasons landscaping or whatever it is, right? I mean, we've, we all know that cliche. And it's also, you know, something you don't know about people until you really get to know them. A lot of what you hear in terms of complaints is the need to compete in social media, to have a hot take, to be sort of jealous or bitter that you weren't there, or or how you would have done it better. Why can't we see it as a somewhat humorous slogan by someone who wanted to make a feminist statement that night? and move on to our further discussion of what that means. There's all kinds of reasons to be offended. I might say, well, Kara, what else are you doing for women's liberation lately? You know, um, could you have talked more about abortion rights when they interviewed you on the red carpet? I mean, you know, any, anybody could come up with, you know, she should have done this, she should have done that. The fact is, we're the plebes looking at the snow globe. You know, I mean, all of the kind of things that go on at these events are so fantastical compared to most people's lives, I have to regard it with a little bit of a a remove and not take it so seriously. I am so much more interested in what everybody is doing for women's civil rights and agency and support in real terms. It's not funny. It's not sexy. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if we wanted to do performance art, I think we should all show up in caravans in Texas ready to start doing a abortion services and birth control. Like, that would be my idea of a great performance event. Or to support greater sex education so we don't have such stilted conversations about what's acceptable to enjoy in bed, what does consent mean, can you ever have a laugh about such things. The patriarchy, as in the establishment of largely older whiter men who control the world care not a toss for what Kara wore to the gala. <laughs> and uh, to me, it's, I get, you know, I get tied up in knots um, for all the award seasons too, you know, but I, I really do regard it with a bit of a fashion eye. You decide who looked great, who made the scene, who was a little outrageous and provocative, and you move on. I don't take it as I would not be making a voting or, a, or an organizing decision based on what anybody wore that night. I don't think Kara wore this outfit to do much sex education. It was a political message, and she was just trying to use a safe word that could be emblazoned on TV. Jolly for her. Her deeper meaning, and probably everyone's deeper meaning, who really does have a critical view of patriarchy, is that we're sick and tired of feeling like We hold up more than half the world, and we don't get an even break. And in fact, we're disdained and abused for it. So if you want to get serious, like, let's end the fashion presentation and, like, pick up the work for tomorrow's fight. That's always what it comes to. In the moment, I enjoy some fun fashion escapism and sexy jokes as much as the next person. Here's what good comes out of it. Number one, the idea that it is still fashionable to criticize the ruling class. I like that. I like that it's still fashionable to criticize patriarchy. Go for it. Any messages on that are great. The second thing that comes out of it that's any good is for people who said, well, what is pegging exactly? If they learned a little bit, if any of this information like, oh, really? Men 
enjoy anal sex in a consensual, pleasurable way? How does that work? Perhaps a few books or tips will come their way or some a friend in their life who says, yeah, I can I can explain this to you and talk to you more about it. Or, you know, do you want to have a conversation with your lover about this? If we have that good natured understanding about what sexual variety can look like, I'm all in favor of it. After all, that was the reason there was any silver lining to the AIDS epidemic was that people had to start talking about sex in public ways that they had never done before. It was the first time I ever heard the phrase anal sex on the evening news. And of course, it was fraught with fear because people were like, it looks like blood transmission and sexual transmission that Anal sex, it's a vector, and the particular tissues and the part of the body that we're talking about, there's things to look at scientifically or from a health educator point of view. But while we were looking at infection transmission risk, which, you know, everybody's getting to be a pocket expert at that with COVID, right, different disease, but still being interested in health risk was a huge issue. I used to travel the country doing something called safe sex for sex maniacs, you know, local theaters and campuses. And it was a way to open up and say, yes, there's actually things you can do that are low risk or safe. And you might be interested in them because they don't fit the idea that there's only one or two things you should do in bed and everybody should, you know, close their eyes and think of Queen Victoria. You know, like there is a a modern way to discuss sex. So I find when Issues like this come up in public, and people go, oh, what does that mean? Does that mean SM? Does that mean anal sex? Does that mean cross-dressing? You know, like, if they wonder about what kind of sex is being suggested or asked about, it opens the door to maybe have a more far-reaching conversation than the original incident ever suggested. That was a sex pundit, Susie Bright. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of St. Vincent's Nowhere In, for two reasons. One, it was released just about a week ago, and two, she used to date Carrie D. Levine back around 2015. Till next week, bye. Driver, do you mind? Turn up, taxi, climb. Walk in on my own tonight. Hate being in polite, but I'll smile to Me by the burn sign where hell is near, and I took a picture.